you think women are interesting and literary arts are a pretty cool thing, well come cozy up with the fainting couch. Feminists, we got poets, we got artists, we got short story writers, musicians, memoirists, all cozied up on the fainting couch. Feminists, Get it? For you! No matter who, what, or how you identify, baby, we'd like to intelligently discuss your point of view. We're hysterical! Hey there, chicklets. Welcome to Fainting Couch Feminists, a podcast brought to you by Room Magazine and best suited to witches, bitches, and anyone who's ever been called hysterical. Hello, I'm your host, Micah, and this is our last full-length episode ever. Ah, I know, I feel a lot of things. This has been such a journey, and I'm very grateful to you for coming on this journey with me. So I present to you today a compilation episode, which is basically just a big old mishmash of conversations and segments that I thought were especially primo. Premium content, preemtent, you know. So I'm going to introduce these little segments one at a time. Oh, it was so hard to choose because... Ah, so many cool people have been on this show over the years, and oh, I'm just very grateful for the journey. And of course, as one chapter ends, another beginneth. So I'm going to be introducing a new project next week in a little bonus petite mini episode. But for now, I hope you enjoy the Fainting Couch Feminist Highlight Reel, the cream of the crop, the top shit, the cat's ass, the bee's knees, the cat's pajamas. The cat's meow. The dog's breakfast. I'm going to stop now and lead you into a clip featuring Ann T. Donahue, who really helped me justify my love and want to write about pop culture. Pop culture, I think, is also wrongfully downplayed as something that is trivial or unimportant because it appeals to everybody. And I think it's also easy to forget that you can talk about politics and you can talk about a lot of very important and urgent subject matter within something that's for everybody. And mm. like when you look at movies and you look at television and you listen to music, it always reflects what's happening in the world at the time. Uh, it just takes somebody who writes about it or is obsessed with it to draw attention to it sometimes. So, I mean, I think pop culture is so important. It's such a great barometer uh, but you also have to, you know, reconcile that maybe some days are not the day to promote that piece that you really want on, um, you know, X show or X movie. Like maybe, you know, it's more sensitive or more or it's smarter to wait because, you know, there are obviously very important conversations that we are having that are outside of the realm of pop culture. And you don't want to take away from those voices either. But I think it's also easy to gauge when that is and when that should be because most of it's just common sense. Ooh, and you are so right. I, I agree that pop culture is an excellent barometer for where we're at culturally, socially, politically. I mean, so if, yeah, you want to write a think piece called The Glorious Depravity of Love Island, well, don't do that because The New Yorker already has. But my point is, 
We need people to write intelligently about so-called trash TV because it will lead to more people consuming these shows with a critical eye as opposed to being brainwashed by them, which uh, happens. Anyway, let's get into the next clip. This one features Lisa Tadeo, who, oh my God, since speaking with her, she has blown up the bestseller list even more. Her book is called Three Women. And if you haven't read it yet, baby, get your paws on it. It's so good. So here's a little taste of our conversation on sex, desire, and power moves. You mentioned, too, this was in the press release. Um, you said there is something vehemently organized about the way that women keep their desire and their pain to themselves. And I was like, I don't know, I was really thinking hard on this sentence and I wondered what you meant by vehemently organized. And is that, is that organization of pain, of desire, like a harmful thing to women? Uh, you know, I think it, it can be. Um, you know, I think that, I think a lot of the women I spoke to did not, and certainly this has been my case in my own history, did not want the people, the partners, that, or the, you know, the people they had crushes on, even though that's a silly word, but the people that they liked or thought they might love, um, they didn't want them to know, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, with, with a lot of women, with Lena, you know, with my, many of my friends, we would like analyze, you know, text messages and then wonder about how to reply to them in a way that did not seem too thirsty. To mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's an organization of, you know, Lena, um, was careful about how to respond to Aiden so that he wouldn't be scared off so that he wouldn't think she liked him too much. She knew that there was like this level she had to like stay on and, you know, to be available and yet not too available. There's this like, and that's an organization of, of just who you are. You're not acting from your heart and your mind. You're acting from this, like this computer inside your brain. And so that's what I meant by that. But I don't, you know, I don't think that's everybody, but I think that many, many, probably 80% of the women I spoke to had some element of that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you're talking about not wanting to seem too thirsty over text and that kind of stuff. I mean, I, it resonates with me a lot, I think, personally. And like, I've heard from a lot of my friends, it's always like, oh, you don't want to like you don't want to seem like you want it too much because you want there, if there's a hierarchy in a relationship, which I mean, there usually is, whether that's stable, whether it flip flops at times, usually there's some degree of that present. You kind of want to be on top. And I think, I don't know, for me, I've always, I felt better about myself being wanted than being the wantee. And I think that does carry into like, sex and desire too, right? Like I know it's still uncomfortable for me mentally to initiate sex because it, sometimes it feels like a failure to me. Mm -hmm. And I know like as much as I want to be an empowered woman who like takes desire into my own hands and like says what I want, there's always like shame that accompanies that. And I don't know if that's something I should try to work past and improve on, or if I'm actually destined to always feel that way. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, and that's really, that resonates with me too. And, you know, I think that, you know, there's a, there's this notion of empowerment that, you know, 
that is very valid and it's very like, and we should not, you know, there's this like whole, we shouldn't, there's this whole idea that women, heterosexual women should not wait around for heterosexual men, um, that they should, if they want them, like tell them. Like, again, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but what I've learned from reading a bunch of books and talking to multiple researchers at the Kinsey Institute and beyond is that, you know, there's that biological thing that comes up again where men want to chase. And if the chase is eliminated, then, you know, th there's a sort of lack of desire that meta metastasizes on their part. And then the woman feels that that pulling away. So then she comes forward more. So, you know, there's empowerment and then there's going against biology and the idea, you know, I mean, when that movie, he's just not that into you mm. <laughs> or, you know, there's another book that I really like, and it has a silly title. It's why men marry bitches. And like, it sort of goes, and these are like silly, right? I mean, they sound silly, but I find a lot of a lot of like really good content and the thing is when you say that title or when you talk about those things it sounds like we're going back to the 50s mm -hmm. um and you know but we shouldn't go back to the 50s in terms of voting in terms of you know equal pay and all those things however you know i do wonder what what lessons from our mothers or grandmothers we can still use because they didn't come from nowhere they came from history you know and i don't know i mean that's just i mean think about how many times i'm sure you have like just told your friends don't call him don't call him yeah oh yeah like this don't text them back and it's like you know what are you supposed to do go you know you need to talk to like that's not going to that's not going to get you what you want you know mm -hmm. so i think it's if it's about i think empowerment comes in getting what you want and in learning, you know, rather than breaking through the glass door, we can break through the glass ceiling instead of breaking through the glass door. Like, how do we go around it to get what we want? How do we, you know, quote unquote, win what we want without, without subjugating who we are? Yeah. Some real interesting points by Lisa. That said, I know not everyone probably agrees with the whole you know, there's empowerment and then there's going against biology because I guess I just don't believe that biology or quote unquote the natural way should rule our behavior or dictate our decisions because that can lead us down some pretty dangerous roads. And I know Lisa wasn't arguing that like biology is king and we must obey our biological programming at all costs. Like, no, no, no. But I just wanted to raise that issue. Like, if a woman wants to chase instead of being chased, girl, chase! I once chased an Australian boy over the seas and it worked out great until it didn't. Uh, but anyways, do your thing. You gotta learn. Next up on the highlight reel is Vivek Shreya, the wonderful author, musician, and activist talking about toxic masculinity because let's face it, most of us throw that term around without really knowing what it means. I do want to talk about masculinity as a concept, especially in terms of toxic masculinity, because I've heard, actually, I was reading an article in which you were quoted, it was a Vice article, mm -hmm. and they were saying, you know, that toxic masculinity is sort of a problematic term because it implies there is a masculinity that is not toxic. Mm -hmm. And I kind of was thinking about this and was like, really? Like, 
is is all masculinity toxic? Like that seems so hard. Can you do you want to dive into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, part of it is also that I think that when we have a phrase like toxic masculinity, it allows men to be like, "That's not me." And so, a lot of men, when they hear toxic masculinity, the phrase, they don't think there's a part of them that engages in that is toxic. They think that they're somehow removed from what we're talking about when we're mm-hmm. talking about toxic masculinity. You know, it's like in the ways that most white people think that they're good white people. So when they see, when they hear something like racism or white supremacy, they're like, that's not me. And easily brush it off. Exactly. And so I'm like, I feel like toxic masculinity as a phrase gives men an out because they don't have to engage with that conversation. Mm. And I want men to be engaged with this conversation. And so I deliberately never use the phrase toxic masculinity in the book because I think that even the quote unquote best man in the world still possesses a masculinity that can be toxic. And I've witnessed right. this and I, I see like quote unquote good men all the time get passes because we we see them as good men. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's less about being like, all oh, masculinity is bad. All oh, masculinity is toxic. Right. I mean, I will say that, you know, my experience of masculinity has been largely toxic, mm-hmm. but that's less of the point that I'm trying to make. The point that I'm trying to make is that I think if we create any kind of out through language, which I think toxic masculinity does, it allows men to not engage with the conversation. Right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Ah, a wonderful explanation from Vivek. Next up, we have Alexandra Bischoff, who spoke with me about peep shows, pornos, and performance art. And I am in love with her views on women's labor and the link between embroidery and sex work. So here's Alexandra. In this show that you're doing, don't you also have, you mentioned having some vintage porno magazines. Don't you have like embroidery in some of them too? So I have this practice, which I also consider kind of a performance, even though it's sort of a performance for no one but myself, (laughs) where I, um, I find these pornographic magazines and I stitch into them. And embroidery to me is, it's one of the most, quote unquote, feminine, wholesome art forms. Yeah. It's like, there's this long history of it being encouraged um, in young ladies. I think because it keeps you quiet and focused and in the corner of the room. focused on making things very pretty and beautiful and when I started thinking about embroidery as an action it's actually like kind of dangerous with the needle yeah (laughs) Yeah. and it's also kind of like it's kind of sexy like you're penetrating over and over again wow (laughs) this is deep (laughs) there's like a bit of a femme fatale aspect to it that you know like embroidery itself sure very feminine and soft but you know, they don't tell you what you have to embroider. Right. And so I'm looking at this very classic example of women's labor. And I, what I would also call a classic example of women's labor, which sure. is yeah, yeah. sex work. And I'm putting the two together, often to a humorous end. Because at least what I find in these magazines, like there's this one magazine, The Fetish is Older Women. And so it's women in their, like, they're not even, like, older. Like, they're in their 40s, maybe. Right. They're old crones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And there's this one spread of a woman, and she's got her foot on, like, one of those old school rotary telephones. 
which I think is a really funny prop to put in. Yeah. It's almost like they're saying, look, she's old. She has a rotary telephone. <laughs> <laughs> so I embroider around that prop to make it like more noticeable. Right. You draw attention exactly. to something. Exactly. Very cool. Mm. Oh my God. I love that explanation of mm. all of that. I sure do. Now, up next, I have Soraya Shamali, who is the author of The Power of Women's Anger, which is also a TED Talk. And uh, in this clip, we discuss exactly that. Women's anger, why it's powerful, necessary, and uh, often very misunderstood. There are different gender standards for anger, I suppose, in our society. And like what you say is that anger is far less palatable on a woman, but why do you think that is? Why have we developed that understanding that anger is kind of ugly on a woman, I suppose, or scary? Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I will add that I would say I use gender almost as a Trojan horse, because in fact, what we're talking about is status and people's social location. So anger from people who are subordinate in society is never welcome. So that might have to do with race and ethnicity. It might have to do with gender or gender identity. But generally speaking, anywhere you go in the world, women continue to be subordinate and their anger is not welcome. So it's a matter of social construction, how we socially think about these things, the language we use, the way we socialize children, the power we give people or the power we take away from people. And so what I try and describe in the book is the many ways in which we continue to reward men for displaying anger as a marker of masculine entitlement Mm -hmm. and punish women for trying to use anger effectively. Because when women do that, when they claim the power that anger demands or the accountability that anger demands, they're seen in society as transgressing, as breaking the rules, as not fulfilling the role they're supposed to play, which is to be more quiet, to be more submissive, to be more supportive. Those gender stereotypes are really powerfully embedded, not just in our way of looking, not just in our way of acting, but in the way our economy functions, right? We have a sex segregated labor force with unpaid care labor fundamental to its success. And that unpaid care labor, we're supposed to believe is just the natural place for women to spend their time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I do think in certain circles, I know certainly like I work for a feminist magazine, And we just did this big literary festival a couple weeks ago. And I definitely see like a place for women's anger, like Mm -hmm. it is being accepted and embraced and but only I think in certain circles. But sometimes I I'm wary of this anger and like I feel free to unpack this or like correct me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm wary that that anger is combative and maybe less counterproductive yeah because i mean what i'm talking about is like women who say like oh like straight white men suck kind of as a blanket statement right then that kind of elicits this defensiveness you know men will get their hackles up and say well that's not me and fire back with something equally poisonous so i'm wondering like how do we kind of toe the line between productive anger and like combative isolating anger Right. So I'd say a couple of things. One is I try and argue in the book that we need to 
acknowledge a very broad array of behaviors that are fueled by anger that we don't think of as angry. Mm. So we tend to cling to this idea that anger is loud, violent, destructive, breaks relationships, disruptive, right? Because Mm. we have examples of that. And, And that's the kind of very negative impression that we grow up associating with anger. But in fact, there are many behaviors fueled by anger that we don't call angry or that we don't acknowledge the role of anger in. So, you know, most of the feminist communities that I have joined that are joyful or creative or super productive are fueled by women's anger. Mm. It's just we don't associate the joy, creativity and, and, you know, productivity with anger we tend to call it other things like they're so passionate about their work (laughs) yeah yeah. right we use other words and we tend to use the word passionate interestingly enough i wonder why Mm -hmm. when women are angry right you know and so i just think we need to step back a little and think about how we use the language around anger or whose anger gets recognized as standard. I would argue that a lot of people, when they think of angry people, are thinking about the prototypical stereotype of an angry white man screaming or breaking something. Mm-hmm. That's what you get when you Google anger management. You Google anger management. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and, and so I just believe that we need to understand all the different ways that anger gets tessellated into our minds and our bodies and our social situations and to acknowledge not just its negative aspects and disruptive aspects, but its very positive ones, because there is positive disruption. You know, there are times when making people uncomfortable, while it may not seem productive in the moment, is immensely productive in terms of what it contributes in change over time. Oh, hell yeah, girls. We got to get mad to make things happen sometimes. Uh, Next up, we have Morgan Brayton. Now, this episode clip is from way back in 2016, just after all of the Me Too stuff went down. And Morgan has a really interesting, very personal story related to that. And it's a take that ever since then, I haven't seen represented very often. So... Here's Morgan Brayton, an amazing comedian and writer and actor. As with all of us, it started, you saw, you saw a hashtag and you Mm -hmm. saw another and you saw another. And I remember feeling I should post something about acknowledging the very privileged position that Mm -hmm. I am in, which is not me too, because when it started, it seemed at first to be about sexual assault or uh, rape and I'm very aware that I'm one of the lucky ones that I have not been a victim of rape I have not been a victim of sexual assault and I think it's really important for those of us to who have not to uh, I am very aware that I am one of the lucky ones and that's what I kept when it was like me too me too me too me too me too I kept oh my god like I can't actually believe my luck that I'm not right you know because it's so pervasive and then it sort of, you know, it became clear that it was it was about more than just it's not the word I want, but yeah. it was about it was about more than uh, I've been raped. And of course, we all have 
the stories of there was this situation where I felt unsafe or this situation where this line got crossed or this situation where this inappropriate thing happened or where I was demeaned in this way. And so, of course, every single woman, me too. And, you know, with that growing tide of voices, I felt like so many, this combination of empowered and enraged, yeah. right? And enraged because just looking at those sheer numbers is enraging and also people's astonishment at the number of Me Too's. Um, it's like, yeah, no, we've been saying this for decades. <laughs> Women have been telling you. So there was that. The various responses and backlashes had an emotional impact on me. Um, and then a thing happened at the lady show that I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. We were planning our next show at that time. And so we, and I talked about this at, at the show that you were at, you know, we got together at our planning meeting and we're, we were all really fired up and, and talking about, you know, this is the thing we want to address and what does that look like? And we sort of started planning this show that at the end of our, our meeting, we sort of looked at it and went damn, (laughs) that is one very angry show. Um, And, you know, how could it not be, right? And then between that meeting and the meeting that was less than a week later, what happened was uh, some, you know, activism using social media that these hashtag rapist roll call posts started coming out. And uh, it was naming names of men I think specifically in the nightlife entertainment industry, who had problematic behavior of some kind, but all around sexual assault. And I saw somebody's name that I knew. Not just somebody's name that I knew, but somebody that uh, uh, I knew that I used to babysit. His mom is a, a, a friend of mine. You know, he's not somebody that I have been close to, but somebody that I watched grow up. Um, that I used to look after as a little kid. And and I was like, what? And it went from, uh, you know, the anger was still there. And I never, I want to be really clear that I never once, once did the thing that a lot of people do, went, well, this can't be true. Right. Right? I went, because I do, I believe survivors, I don't think (laughs) women, the, the, the false reporting is mostly ridiculous there is no benefit for us to do that Mm -hmm. so I had no reason other than to believe these women that were saying that he had done these things and that was devastating yeah and complicated and upsetting and then the news came out that he was missing and uh so in addition to continually being glued to social media to see how this was unfolding on a global scale and really feeling like, oh, this is different. Something has shifted. You know, I was saying this to somebody the other day, like we've seen a lot of things happen where we're like, oh, you know, like this is big. Mm -hmm. Something's going down here. I feel like the Me Too, it's a tipping point, right? Where suddenly something has shifted and it's not out of the blue right it's on the backs of decades of feminist activism and education and speaking up and creating change and whatever the timing of it is 
tipping point, something shifted. So in addition to watching what was unfolding on a global scale and being very fascinated by that and interested in that as as a woman and as a feminist and, you know, as a human being uh, who couldn't help but be captivated by this, I was always wait, also waiting for news of where's Zach, right? Yeah. Um, and then I woke up one morning to a post from his aunt um, that he was dead. Mm-hmm. And um, it didn't take long for it to come out that he had killed himself. So then I sat with this. I mean, I was, you know, devastated. Um, and I just couldn't stop thinking about his mom and what she was going through, her only child. Um, and they were very, very close. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, people started saying, good, one less rapist on, on the planet. That's, you know, one less oh. woman he's going to rape um, and things like this. And, and I started to feel really sick and I cried nonstop for days. And, you know, that was the difference of like the angry meeting to the next meeting where this was, I can't remember the timeline, but, you know, it, it was not too long after the news that he'd taken his life and I just you know we went we had this meeting and I basically cried through the whole meeting um just feeling overwhelmed and and complicated and confused and how complex this is and how not black and white it was and I posted something to the effect of like can we all just take a breath for a second Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I didn't, you know, it wasn't from a place of like, this is wrong, you shouldn't do that. But I'm not sure this online vigilantism is the way to go about this. And I got uh, pretty roundly attacked by some friends, um, some feminists saying, you know, you don't get to tell victims how to respond, what is okay and what isn't for them to choose as their activism. And I was like, yeah, sure, that's totally fair. Absolutely. And also, it's just not that simple to me right now, you know? I mean, I'm certainly not grateful that he's dead. My God, Uh, if that could be something that could be undone, if I had any power to undo that, um, I would. But there is a complexity to this situation that is very real to me Mm -hmm. now in a way that, um, that wouldn't have been if Zach was not somebody that I knew. Man, uh, I got to thank Morgan again for sharing that story. I think it's so important to consider all that gray area, to sit in it, to be uncomfortable. Because, yeah, I mean, you can love someone or know someone or care for someone and still recognize that there is a very bad side to them. Can you go on loving and caring for that person while knowing this bad thing exists? I think it depends on the situation. It depends on the person. It depends on your connection. There's just, there are so many variables and so many sides to each story. And I think what Morgan just said is such a hard hitting example of how our intellectual selves, our politically minded, culturally minded, value centered selves can really come into conflict with our emotional selves sometimes. And that's really hard. So thank you, Morgan. Um, we're going to move now to a conversation with Jen Suk-Fong Lee and Stacey May Fowles, who are the co-editors of the book, Whatever Gets You Through, 12 Survivors on Life After Sexual Assault. And in this 
snippet of the interview, we talk about language as it relates to sexual assault and what terms are kind of inadequate when we're discussing, quote unquote, healing, recovery, all of that stuff. Okay, yeah, you pointed out that words like inspiration and courage can be insipid, sentimental, and inadequate when talking about sexual assault. And I I read this and I stopped and I had to think about it for a while because I feel like reading these essays, I was inspired. I was inspired by the courage and the quality of the writing and the bravery and all of this stuff. And then I thought, is that is that the wrong response to have i don't the word inspire it's not that we, i don't think we hate the words but i think that those particular words are so tied to to uh, the whole sort of industry around self-improvement or self-help mm-hmm. is you know has been helpful to lots of people i'm not not going to like hate on that necessarily but again like the idea that you can take a book that has 30 steps in it that you can that you can um, do and then you're going to be better is is or you're going to feel inspired to you know like this it's these words that 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 i think are so tied to this aspirational capitalism you know like if i'm going to talk about like when i think of the word inspire i think people look to like gwyneth paltrow's goop to get inspired to like you know, make their homes perfect and shiny, but that's like not the reality for anything. And I, and I do think so much a part of what we were trying to do with this anthology was really present real stories and, and, you know, really try to reflect what real life actually is for people. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. It I, does. Yeah. And I also think that, um, the way in which people use the word inspiring and courageous it, it looks a certain way to people. Mm. So, you know, I am very obsessed with, you know, if somebody is, is doing something that culturally we look down upon, that could actually be a courageous mode of survival. So, you know, drinking, doing drugs, um, you know, because that's something they're doing in the moment to stay alive, Um, we would look at that and not say that was courageous. We would say that was wrong, that was bad, and that there's sort of this like one note version of what a courageous, inspiring journey is. See how I used all three of those words at once? It's great. Nice. (laughs) You know, you have to put on a backpack and, you know, climb up a mountain or you have to take a yoga class or you, you know, you have to do something that's sanctioned. Um, And I think in the interim, a lot of people do things that are not sanctioned. And I think that is also courageous, but that's not a kind of courage we're able to celebrate. Um, So I think that's kind of why I pull away from those words, not because they're wrong. Like so much of this is absolutely courageous, Mm -hmm. but what version of courage are we sanctioning? That's a wonderful point. Uh, snaps for expanding our definition of courage. Okay, I love that. Thank you, Jen and Stacy. Uh, next up, we have Mujda Jamalzada. Oh man, I love this interview with Mujda, who's a singer, who's an activist, who's a talk show host, and has been called the Oprah of Afghanistan. This interview is from about two years ago. Here's Mujda. Yeah. Well, you know, you've been called the Oprah of Afghanistan by many, many yeah. platforms. And I'm wondering, like, this obviously is not a name you've given yourself, and I think... Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> but I'm wondering, like, how do you feel about this comparison? Like, do you find it complimentary, or is it at all frustrating to be contextualized in such, like, you know, like a very Western-centric way? Or yeah, It's definitely a compliment, and it's, mm-hmm. it's an honor to kind of get that title even though I truly know that I don't deserve that because 
you know, the level that Oprah is at and the work that she's done over so many years, you can't just easily give somebody else that kind of title within such a short time. Mm -hmm. So I don't, you know, think that I deserve that. But of course, I think the reason that they said the Oprah of Afghanistan is because it's easier for people to kind of get the idea of what my show was about. Because in the beginning, you know, the entire concept of the Mujda show was we were trying to make it similar to the Oprah show because we're like... The Oprah show airs in a lot of countries, but it does not air in Afghanistan. And like, this is a country that needs something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, speaking about issues, taboo topics and difficult subjects and things like that. And so like when when I was talking to magazines and newspapers and things like that at that time in 2010, it just became this thing. And I guess people, you know, these media outlets, I remember the first one must have been the Vancouver Sun and then like global television and then CNN. And then they just went from there and they're like, the Oprah of Afghanistan. I was like, what? (laughs) So that just, you know, because we were talking about how similar uh, we made it to the Oprah show. So, and then I did get a chance to go on the Oprah show as well. Did you? Yeah, her producers wanted to surprise her for the Oprah show surprise spectacular. And it was like the last minute. It was like, no, you met Oprah? Yes, I did. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. And how was she? Oh, (laughs) she's. I think she's just a little bit above human. Like right. I don't even <laughs> yeah. when I when I felt her presence when I was actually standing in front of her and she's hugging me, mm-hmm. it was just the energy. Her energy is wow. so powerful. It's so different from anything I've experienced. Oh, so I decided to think that she is not just human. You know, right. She might have a little bit more in her. Wow. And so how long did the Mushta show go? Because didn't the Canadian embassy recommend you leave the country because it did get pretty you know, controversial and you're receiving threats. And can you talk a bit about that? So my dad was my advisor. So was my uncle. And they just wanted to make sure that I didn't, you know, cross the line too much. So in the beginning, my dad's like, don't go straight into women's issues. He's like, start with children, you know, child abuse. Child abuse is huge there. It's like over 90% of children get abused in one way or another. Uh, And then, you know, then he's like slowly start to talk about the family and how it impacts the family. And then of course, like domestic violence, how that Mm -hmm. impacts the children and the family in general and what you can do instead and things like that. So we started slowly, you know, getting into the hearts of people and then into their minds. So that was the um, idea. And then we got to a point where I really pushed it. You know, after you, you just get comfortable. You're like, oh, I'm getting away with all this. Let's try a couple more things. And I started talking about divorce and things because at that time I was witness to a lot of, a lot of suicide attempts by young brides and they were setting themselves on fire. Yeah. Um, And so I was like, you know, the culture is so, so dominantly like you have to be very careful what your neighbors think of you and what other people think of you. And these people are constantly paying attention to what others think of them and not the well-being of their own family members. So they they actually sacrifice the well-being of their own family members, like their own daughters and their own wives, just to kind of prove a point or or follow that culture that's become normal now. And so that's what I was trying to get at, you know, Take care of your own family and don't worry about what other people around you think because mm-hmm. that's just... Cultures are created by humans. They can also right. be altered and changed by humans, right? So that was basically what it was. And then I started talking about uh, divorce and things like that, that if it gets really bad, you should actually consider divorce before your daughter tries to burn herself to death. I was angry. Mm-hmm. I was very angry. Of 
And, you know, they said, even my uncle was like, you're, you're pushing this now because they're not going to accept it. And so I was like, I'm going to do what I have to do. That's what I came here for. And I did that. And all of a sudden there was this huge rumor that I got killed, but not just killed. They said that they had severed my nose and my ears and uh, shaved my head and severed my head and all kinds of like torturous things. And I was like, well, I don't want to go down this way. I'm in Afghanistan. I know the risks of being here. I I know that I could die in an explosion or something, but I don't want to be made an example of by these extremists Mm -hmm. that I'm fighting. That's when the Canadian embassy got involved and they said, you know, you need to leave. I was actually at home in Vancouver visiting my family when this rumor started. Wow. Was it, and you just, did you find out about it online or? No, I got phone calls from really big people. The owner of the chairman of the TV station that I was working at at the time, all of a sudden he sent me an email with the subject line urgent and I opened it. Where are you? I said, I'm I'm home. I'm like, you know, I took (laughs) two weeks off to come visit my family. He's like, well, there's a really terrible rumor right now. And he's like, Like somebody just called our news office and said, you know, this is a hospital and we have her body. There's bullet holes and she's been shot dead. He goes, that's what freaked me out is that they called our news team. And that was Tolo TV. And then the company that I worked for, Azizi Bank, they also called and they were very concerned. And then my dad was on the phone. And so all these calls and emails Mm -hmm. happened within the same day. And I was just in my room and my mom comes in, you know, with the phone in her hand. She goes, your dad called there's this really terrible rumor going on. And I was like, mom, there's always rumors, you know, this is no big deal. But next thing I know, they're planning my funeral across the board. And I went back to London. I switched my SIM card back to my Afghanistan one. And all of a sudden, all these text messages and voicemails from the Canadian embassy saying, urgent, please call us right away. I called. I said, what's going on? They said, their intelligence believes that I'm under direct threat. And they're like, where are you right now? I said, I'm, I'm in London. I'm in transit. And I'm coming back to Afghanistan. They said, please just turn back around to Vancouver Whoa. right now. I said, I can't. I have my whole life there yeah. now. And they're like, well, we suggest you pack up your whole life within the next 24 hours and get out. Otherwise, you know, we're not responsible for what's mm-hmm. going to happen. We, you've been warned. And I was like, holy cow. So... Uh, when I went back, the company is Easy Bank. They said, you need to leave. No matter what level of security we provide for you, it's not going to be enough to keep you safe right now. Like, you just need to lay low for a while. So everybody, my family, everyone, they're like, you need to leave right wow. now. So it was really tough. How long has it been since you've been back in Canada? Since 2012. But I okay. do go on and on. Like, I, okay. I do go. Right. Yeah, I, I have concerts there. Oh, I have shows. Nice. I have, like, I make TV appearances yeah. all the time. Uh, It's just that I don't actually live there and host my own show. But we're in talks with the TV station to actually continue it again within the next few months. Wow. Oh, love Mushta. Anyway, an update is she now has a book out. It's called Voice of Rebellion, and you can get that pretty much anywhere books are sold. Her face is on the cover. She is so beautiful. Um, so if you like Mojda's story, if you want to hear more, buy her book. Um, now we're moving into a conversation with Anna Mailer Paperni, who's a journalist and author of the memoir, Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me. And it's about her experience with depression. Um, she has attempted suicide multiple times. And so this book is at once... A narrative, it's her story, but it's also an investigation because, as Anna said, she's first and foremost a journalist. So she looked into, well, what is depression? Why is it happening so often? And how can we change the way we understand it and interact with this illness as a society? Well, you talk about openness, and I think that's an important but 
tricky thing as you write about in the book like there's one line where you say every time I've told someone I have a mood disorder I've come to regret it Mm -hmm. I mean and I think you were I think you were specifically talking about that in the context of the workplace but I wonder what should people know before talking about mental illness with their boss or a colleague or even a friend like because I think as much as we want to be open and communicative, like saying that you're suicidal or depressed kind of makes you in a lot of people's eyes a liability. Yeah. And that's really, really hard um, because you often feel that way yourself. So it's, a, it's this combination of like self-blame and this external uh, stigmatization can be really, really tough to deal with. So I think knowing that, first of all, you're not under any obligation to tell anybody what you're going through. I would recommend telling, you know, being open and honest with people like, you know, your health professionals, just because their job is to make, make you better and they can't make you better unless you tell them what's going on. Um, that said, they have to be the kind of person um, that, you, that you can open up to. And surprisingly, not every health professional is good at that. Mm, so that's a two-way street. But um, someone like your boss or even your friend, don't tell them any more than what you feel comfortable. Um, make sure that this is on your own terms. And if you're not sure, don't tell them. Um, but I think a lot of this is on, from, I mean, from an employer's perspective, um, I think it's important to note that you're not the person's friend, that even if you want to be, and even if you want to be supportive, um, because you're in a position of power, there's a really difficult dynamic there when it comes to disclosures. And you don't, I think, want to sort of pry um, and, and you don't want to try to get more information than you absolutely need. Right. Well, I mean, you talk about this at length in the book, but like, do you think there are more depressed people today or are we just more aware of it? It's hard to say. Um, I think overall, we're probably just more aware of it. And there are more people being prescribed antidepressants who may not have met the criteria for, um, for being prescribed antidepressants, you know, a few decades ago. Yeah. Um, but, and also I think um, there, there are just small things like the fact that, you know, we tend to diagnose it the most in middle-aged people, even though the toll that it takes on young people is huge and it actually manifests itself, you know, uh, predominantly among young adults first. Um, so I think with an aging population, we're sort of seeing more people in the age category that... Um, where where people tend to be diagnosed. So I think I think there's a host of circumstances that make it look more prevalent when in reality we're just more aware of of the toll that it takes and the damage that it causes, mm -hmm. which isn't to minimize what it does, but it's just to say that I, I think it's it's almost too easy to jump to the conclusion that there's an epidemic going on when really that's more perception. Um, necessarily than you know epidemiological reality well i wonder how you think like the internet and online culture plays into it too because i mean there's 
as we sort of mentioned, a lot more openness about mental illness online, like especially on Twitter and stuff. And on one hand, I mean, I think it's great for people to know they're not alone when it comes to struggling with these things. It's super powerful. (laughs) But then sometimes I feel like, and I don't know, I feel kind of weird saying this, but anxiety and depression online is almost trendy sometimes like I look at someone like Melissa Broder who I love by the way um but she's kind of made sadness and depression into like almost her brand yeah and so like again I'm a huge fan but sometimes I feel strange about the fact that maybe sadness is glorified online whereas the truth of mental mental illness and depression like the actual experience of it is so devastating so yeah how do you feel about the way people are talking about depression online It's hard. I think as with so many things, the internet can be a massive resource, but also uh, can do enormous amounts of harm, depending on how you use it and what it's being used for. So I think having more people talk about how they're doing and whether they're suffering and what that's like for them is enormously important. And it's a good way to like, it's a, it's a, it's a way to find information about what you're going through and what resources are out there to help you. But at the same time, um, I mean, we've all seen or heard of, um, you know, message boards where people where like there, there are methods of, su- of suicide available. Um, or, you know, where people kind of, as you say, almost glamorize um, feelings of despondency, um, which is so sad because if this yeah. illness were like, you know, better understood and had more attention paid to it, maybe we would actually be better at at treating it. Um, so I think I think the Internet just makes it, it, it makes communication and mass communication and the dissemination of information so much easier and that can be, I think it's usually a good thing. I think usually I would say the spread of more information and the ability of people to communicate with each other is it's better to have more of that than less. Right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's like so much better than the silence, right? Yeah. But I think it, it also puts on us the increased responsibility of countering misinformation and ensuring that what is put out there is helpful and is not misleading and does not sort of make suffering seem sexy. Wow, yes, agreed. Suffering, not so sexy. You know what is sexy? Joy. Not to say that uh, we need to be joyful all the time because shit happens, but uh, I think it's a very appealing emotion on a person. Now, this final segment is with two dear friends of mine, Jocelyn Tennant and Megan Jones. And uh, it's the longest clip I have for you, but I just, I found everything they said to be so on point and so interesting. And I I don't know, maybe I'm a little biased because they're my friends and this subject matter is very personally interesting to me given my own body issues. We all got them, some more than others. But uh, I really appreciated the way that Megan and Jocelyn were able to connect their own experiences and relate on this very personal level despite existing in very different bodies one thin one fat so here's megan and joss for both of you like what in what ways does being 
fat or being thin make you feel more or less visible? This one was hard for me to answer in some ways because I feel like it's definitely both. Um, it really depends on the space because I think that there are some spaces in which I feel very not visible. Which spaces would those be? I would say romantically, I think a lot of fat women feel they're, or fat people actually, uh, feel like they're less considered less viable than they would otherwise. Right. I mean, whether that's true or not, looked over because of their size or there is like a, a great deal of stigma in being attracted to fat people. It has like been deemed a fetish yeah. for some reason. And so people are, I think, hesitant to be open about that. Well, I've heard of a lot of fat women having experiences with being like the secret girlfriend. Totally, yeah. totally. That's like, that's definitely a, a, a way in which fat desirability disappears too. It's like people not, don't want to openly date a fat girl or they just want to hook up with her. Isn't there like a Seinfeld episode about that or something? There's like, like there's that's kind in of, popular culture is sort yeah. of like pave the way for that. Well, and I kind of grew up with like the joke that like fat girls are good to like get a blowjob from or like mm. fat girls give the best blowjobs because they trying to please you and like I would hear shit like that all the time and that's not to say that I like think that every person should be attracted to me or that if you're not attracted to fat bodies that that makes you a bad person but yeah it definitely makes you feel like a little less seen I think romantically for sure and then in some spaces I feel incredibly visible so in those those spaces would be ones where I'm the only fat person, which is in Vancouver all the time. And like, I have decided, I have chosen on days when I haven't been feeling particularly good about myself to not go to Kids Beach specifically. Right. I've been hesitant to not to go to the pool at Kids Beach, for example. Even though I love swimming, I love being at the beach. I don't want to be the only fat body right. visible in a sea of, you know, perfectly toned people. There's a flaunting culture at that beach. There is. <laughs> it's beach to me is like a poisonous cesspool um, <laughs> of negative body image. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and then also actually I find like art spaces and literary spaces in a lot of ways are very thin, like thin centric. Mm. And that has changed a little bit in certain spaces. I feel like I have found people who are more diverse body wise in different circles. But yeah, I think it depends on the space. Vancouver is difficult. Like Vancouver is like known as a city that is has the lowest BMI in North America or yeah, something like that. Tr- yeah, that's true. And so yeah, you're often the only fat person like on a bus or like in a store. What does that feel like? I notice it immediately. Like it is something I think about all the time. And actually, I sometimes wonder what it would be like to not think about it all the time mm-hmm. because I'm constantly aware of my size in relation to other people. I always, like, I have long wondered what it would feel like to not have that constantly running in the back of my head and, like, what that would free up in my mind. Yeah. (laughs) I've come a long way in terms of how that makes me feel, but I will never not notice. You mentioned, I think it was on Instagram a few days ago, that you were getting off the bus and someone said the word fat as you were getting off the bus. And you posted about it on Instagram, and I'm wondering, like, what does it feel like to openly acknowledge that? To Mm. post about something like that, is that something that is... Like empowering or does it does that clear up mental space yes yes it does I would say um but with that specifically it was just such a <laughs> the person who said it was this middle-aged white guy with dreadlocks who was sort of standing <laughs> by the doors on a really crowded bus and I had to sort of push past him to get right. off the bus and as I was leaving he just said he was just like fat <laughs> wow. and I like kind of turned around and laughed <laughs> but it's also it, like it's stupid it's just mm-hmm. like a stupid 
comment from a person that had I seen or met, I would be like, I have very little respect for you based on the way that you present yourself in the world. So it was, it it's empowering to post about it, to acknowledge that it happens. I think one of the things about being fat, especially when you have like people who care about you in your life who are not body shaming sort of people, um, they sometimes don't see you anymore as fat. They sort of forget right. that that is a, a thing about you that you have to move through the world with. And it is, my experience is different than someone else's, as is the experience of someone who is also a person of color, is also queer. It's very different, and it's much harder to be marginalized in those ways as well. But I think it's important sometimes to remind the people who care about me that, I don't know, I... Hmm. No, I, I know what you're saying, because yeah. like, sometimes I find, because we're good friends, yeah. of course, and, but I hearing you talk about this it makes me think like oh my gosh like I think I know you so well and then I hear about your experiences like every day on the bus and it's like holy shit like this is a big part of your life and as a friend it's a good reality check to know that you know what I mean yeah and it's not it's not like a it's not in um in a way that I'm like seeking sympathy and actually no. that post was more about like I made an achievement this week <laughs> which is that I wore sleeveless shirts for four days in, in a row to work which is like um other fat people would probably understand as like being kind of a big accomplishment because fat arms are not something that you see a lot portrayed even in like body positive spaces. So I was like feeling really good about myself. I was feeling, I have been feeling free to wear what I want this summer, which has been really wonderful. And the fact that that didn't stop me from doing that was what I wanted to celebrate when I posted that in my Instagram story. Less so like listen to the sad thing that happened to me. Not that I think it was perceived that yeah. way, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that like fat bodies do face discrimination on a day-to-day level. Like it, it sometimes feels like one of the few like accepted ways like you can discriminate against someone. Mm-hmm. And Megan, what about for you with the visibility, invisibility things in like different spaces too? As a thin person navigating the world, where do you feel like you're standing out or shrinking? I think that being like a thin white person, like I'm in a really high position of privilege Mm -hmm. in terms of like those identities. I mean, it's interesting because I know that that is a privilege and that I benefit from that in terms of like Jocelyn saying when I get off the bus, like someone's not saying like fat to me, you know? And so like, there are things that I don't experience that that Jocelyn experiences. And so I know that that's a privilege that I hold and that I have to really like interrogate and think about all the time. At the same time, as someone with body dysmorphia and like a long eating disorder battle, it's weird because I feel fat all the time. Even though I know that I'm that I'm thin and that carries with it so much like status, like undeserved status and like benefits because there's so much value placed on thinness that is just so displaced, I guess, or strange. At the same time, I feel fat all the time. So I'm almost like walking off the bus expecting the guy to say like, you're fat because like that's the voice in my head all the time that I just assume everybody else can hear and can see. Mm. So when I'm like in a room of people, I'm like really aware of how much space I'm taking up in the room, how my thighs look, like are my pants too tight? My pants feel really tight. Oh my God, why did I wear these pants? They're so tight, I'm so fat, like constantly. So it's weird because it's like- It is weird because I am like, I have the same That's where the similarities are, but it almost feels like, I almost feel stupid 
saying it because it's it's not the like physical reality it's my like psycho reality or something you know that feels like so real to me but it's shocking to me when if someone is like oh you're so thin because I'm like instantly like oh they're just saying that because like I've gained weight and they just want to make me feel better like it's really pervasive um so I try I try to like separate or hold the two together and separate them if that makes sense but it is like a weird thing that I think a lot of women with eating disorders experience and Mm -hmm. I think the unfortunate thing that happens is that we or I in the past I should say I have forgotten that like I actually do have this privilege and that I need to interrogate that because I'm so obsessed with or I'm so consumed by eating disorder thoughts Mm -hmm. that I tend to feel like I'm I'm the victim like I'm the victim of society because like of the things that I struggle with and I forget about the privilege part if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and I think that is a struggle for people with eating disorders because eating disorders are really intense and like they really Gripping, But I also think there's room to, like, acknowledge privilege that you have just from the way you look. But mm-hmm. also recognize that, like, those thoughts and the way you feel and the way I feel are the responsibility of a system that we are existing in. That, yeah. Like, those are the result of a very thinness, whiteness-focused aesthetic that has pervaded all of Western well, the crazy media thing forever, is that, our like, entire lives. If you're like, ooh, I want to hear the rest of that conversation, well, baby, you can. It's all up on Room Magazine's website, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. I recorded that episode about a year and a half ago, so you'll have to do a little scrolling, but it's there. And it's called Fat Suits, Airbrushing, and the Shortcomings of Hashtag Body Positive. Okay, well, that concludes our compilation episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and please do tune in next week for... An exciting announcement regarding the future of the show, which will not be the show anymore, but something different that will come out in fall 2020. And I'm very jazzed to introduce that to you. Oh, what a tease. Anyways, thank you to Room Magazine, as always, for all of your help. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Michael Amiski or at The Fainted Lady. See ya later. room get it for you no matter who what or how you identify baby we'd like to intelligently discuss your point of view we're hysterical